today. I'm so excited and they're going to come up, but uh, I'm going to do a quick introduction with a little bit of housekeeping. But before we do that, can we appreciate all of our education partners? Let's just give them a round of applause. Appreciate them for being here. Um, man, I tell you, it's, uh, it gets busy about this time of year for a lot of the folks, especially senior living communities. I know right now uh, for them, they're doing a lot of tours. A lot of people are I was coming out of winter and going, I don't want to do this yard thing again this, this season. <laughs> and so, so they're very busy. So we have a few uh, people here from Spanish Cove uh, that live at Spanish Cove that are manning their table. And so if you see some fresh faces over there, go say hello and introduce yourself to them today. Uh, any new people in the room today, first timers, raise your hand. Yay! Hi! Welcome! Yay. I'm Nikki Buckaloo and I'll be the moderator for today and uh, my team and I uh, are education partners, Buckaloo Realty Group and OKC Mature Moves and uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> Estate planning, right? Yeah, getting your affairs in order and uh, in particular what we call bad blood and blended families, right? So I have a couple of things uh, before we bring our panelists up. There are things that, you guys ever seen those, those shows or videos of things that little kids say that are funny, right? Well, there are things that grown adults say too that are funny. And I'm gonna read a few of them for you. You ready? My kids know my wishes. I raised them after all. What could go wrong? <laughs> all my children get along. They will be able to work out the details. Anybody in here have kids? More than one? Yeah. It's not like I have much to fight over anyway, so I doubt there will be any issues. It's our money, so our kids should just be happy we're leaving them something. Go ahead and laugh about that one. I hear it a lot. My kids will take care of him when I'm gone. They know how much I love him. Anybody have stepkids? I don't care what happens after I'm gone. They can just bury me in the backyard beside the dog. <laughs> Jennifer might need to address that one later. I'm happy to be your trustee. Chances are you'll outlive me anyway. Let that sink in. Uh-huh. Okay, so now that I've read the funny ones, I'm going to read some not-so-funny ones. And then we're going to bring our panelists up to help us figure out how to help people who might say these things. Um, you know, being in real estate for almost 30 years now, you would think that we've heard it all. Um, but we hear things more and more often than what I remember hearing them. And I don't know if it's just more complicated or what. But some of these are mine. Some of these are other people's. But here's one. How will I afford this place if he dies and all our savings goes to his kids? All I have is my social security. My oldest son is my power of attorney and he drained my savings account. How do I get it back? I found out when my husband died that he had mortgaged the house. They're threatening foreclosure. What should I do? 
Mom has dementia and has been convinced by a man 30 years younger than her to marry, sell her home, and buy a house together with him. Can we stop her? My dad died and everything he had now belongs to my stepmother. Will I get his share after she dies? I am the trustee for my uncle's estate. He died two days ago. The neighbors called me today to say there are people moving things out of the house. What can I do? I assume that when one of us dies, the house automatically belongs to the other. That's the law, right? I guess the state will take care of things for me since I don't have anyone I can trust to do it. That should probably go on in the first section, right? I don't know, it's funny but not funny. So, um, so we're gonna talk about these things uh, and a few others in addition. So if we could please welcome Jennifer, Kendra, and John up to the front. Alright, so from your left to right, we've got Jennifer, we've got Kendra, and we've got John. And I've prepared some questions for them. Go ahead, guys, grab a seat. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk through these questions, and uh, or a question, and then we're going to flush it out. And at, at your table, you have a handout. It's got some boxes at the bottom. And what I recommend is that you make notes there about questions that are coming up for you. And then uh, when we get to the question and answer part, um, we'll take questions as long as we have time. And these guys will answer them. Now, you may also be thinking to yourself, some of your questions are pretty personalized, like very specifically personal. And those may not be the best, this may not be the best venue for that. So if that's the case, um, on the back of the evaluation form today, there's an opportunity, um, not the worksheet, but the evaluation, which is like the third piece of paper on your table. There's a place that you can request a uh, consultation. And if you'd like to do that, um, then that would be the place to check that box. All right? Chris, I'm, I'm sounding a little echoey. Okay. All right. So, are you guys ready? Yeah, so the first question is, who are you, what do you do, and a little bit about your background so these guys can know, like I do, how smart you are. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Um, let's go with Jennifer first, and she's, we'll go top to bottom. How's that? Yeah. Well, I'm Jennifer Wright, and I am an attorney in Oklahoma City with the firm Baltimore Slow. I have uh, been practicing law for 17 years. Um, and I've been with uh, doing estate planning, probate, and adult guardianship for about 13 of those 17 years. So most of my career I've focused in this area and really found that I, I really enjoy doing estate planning and working with people in that planning process. Um, and I. I like doing probate and guardianship because it makes me a better estate planner because we see what happens when people didn't plan in the probate and guardianship world. Yeah, so that's where you get to, that's your lab. Yay, hi, welcome. Yay. I'm Nikki Buckaloo and I'll be the moderator for today and uh, my team and I uh, are education partners, Buckaloo Realty Group and OKC Mature Moves. And uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, what are we talking about today? Estate planning, right? 
Yeah, getting your affairs in order, and uh, in particular, what we call bad blood and blended families, right? So I have a couple of things uh, before we bring our panelists up. There are things that, you guys ever seen those, those shows or videos of things that little kids say that are funny, right? Well, there are things that grown adults say too that are funny. And I'm gonna read a few of them for you, you ready? My kids know my wishes. I raised them after all. What could go wrong? <laughs> all my children get along. They will be able to work out the details. Anybody in here have kids? More than one? It's not like I have much to fight over anyway, so I doubt there will be any issues. It's our money, so our kids should just be happy we're leaving them something. Go ahead and laugh about that one. I hear it a lot. My kids will take care of him when I'm gone. They know how much I love him. Anybody have stepkids? I don't care what happens after I'm gone. They can just bury me in the backyard beside the dog. Jennifer might need to address that one later. I'm happy to be your trustee. Chances are you'll outlive me anyway. Let that sink in. Uh-huh. Okay, so now that I've read the funny ones, I'm going to read some not-so-funny ones. And then we're going to bring our panelists up to help us figure out how to help people who might say these things. Um, you know, being in real estate for almost 30 years now, you would think that we've heard it all. Um, but we hear things more and more often than what I remember hearing them. And I don't know if it's just more complicated or what, but some of these are mine, some of these are other people's. But here's one. How will I afford this place if he dies and all our savings goes to his kids? All I have is my social security. My oldest son is my power of attorney and he drained my savings account. How do I get it back? I found out when my husband died that he had mortgaged the house. They're threatening foreclosure. What should I do? Mom has dementia and has been convinced by a man 30 years younger than her to marry, sell her home, and buy a house together with him. Can we stop her? My dad died and everything he had now belongs to my stepmother. Will I get his share after she dies? I am the trustee for my uncle's estate. He died two days ago. The neighbors called me today to say there are people moving things out of the house. What can I do? I assume that when one of us dies, the house automatically belongs to the other. That's the law, right? I guess the state will take care of things for me since I don't have anyone I can trust to do it. That should probably go on in the first section, right? I don't know. It's funny, but not funny. So. Um, so we're going to talk about these things uh, and a few others in addition. So if we could please welcome Jennifer, Kendra, and John up to the front. All right. So from your left to right, we've got Jennifer, we've got Kendra, and we've got John. And I've prepared some questions for them. Go ahead, guys. Grab a seat. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk through these questions and uh, or a question, and then we're gonna flush it out. 
And at, at your table, you have a handout. It's got some boxes at the bottom. And what I recommend is that you make notes there about questions that are coming up for you. And then uh, when we get to the question and answer part, um, we'll take questions as long as we have time. And these guys will answer them. Now, you may also be thinking to yourself, some of your questions are pretty personalized, like very specifically personal. And those may not be the best, this may not be the best venue for that. So if that's the case, um, on the back of the evaluation form today, there's an opportunity, um, not the worksheet, but the evaluation, which is like the third piece of paper on your table. There's a place that you can request a uh, consultation. And if you'd like to do that, um, then that would be the place to check that box. All right? Chris, I'm, I'm sounding a little echoey. Okay. All right. So, are you guys ready? Yeah. So the first question is, who are you? What do you do? And a little bit about your background so these guys can know, like I do, how smart you are. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Um, let's go with Jennifer first. And she's, we'll go top to bottom. How's that? Well, I'm Jennifer Wright, and I am an attorney in Oklahoma City with the firm Baltimore Slow. I have uh, been practicing law for 17 years, um, and I've been with uh, doing estate planning, probate, and adult guardianship for about 13 of those 17 years. So most of my career, I've focused in this area and really found that I, I really enjoy doing estate planning and working with people in that planning process. Um, and I, I like doing probate and guardianship because it makes me a better estate planner because we see what happens when people didn't plan in the probate and guardianship world. Yeah, so that's where you get to, that's your lab almost, right? For when you, that's where you hear the horror stories and you hear, I'm not letting that happen to the next person. Correct. Right. Awesome. Okay, very good. And you guys have seen Jennifer before. She's been on panels with us in the past, and so um, she'll be a familiar face. Kendra uh, has also been on panels before, but it's been a long time ago. So, it has. Yeah, we're glad to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Uh, my name is Kendra Barnes. I'm with Arvest Wealth Management, where I serve as a trust officer. I have been with Arvest about five and a half years, but I've been in the financial services industry this July will be 19 years. So I started when I was four. Right. And That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, thank you. Um, I will retire doing this in one way, shape, or form. I absolutely love working hand in hand with my clients to just make sure that I can alleviate the stresses that they're feeling with these what if scenarios. What if I don't plan properly, or what if one of my children does this? It's it's always nice to basically get paid to help people, and I absolutely love that part of the job. Perfect. So really quick, uh, before we move to John, let me just ask, on, in a day-to-day -day scenario, uh, trust management, can you give everybody just a brief snapshot of what that actually sure. is? Sure. Yeah. So every day is a little different. Um, I may be fielding requests from beneficiaries. I might be working on taxes, which I am right now. Uh, for all of my trust tax returns. Um, I will be looking at real estate holdings. I will be checking investment management, how we're doing there. It's a very multifaceted job, but basically I've been trusted to manage all of the assets 
that a precious family has worked their entire lives to acquire. And within their trust document, I have all of their wishes spelled out. And so that's my job is to honor those wishes. That's not a big job at all. No. I can't even imagine what that's like. Love it. Uh, yeah. So next to a physician, I think that's pr a pretty big responsibility. Yeah. Right. John, tell us a little bit about you. My name is John Branscombe, and I'm a professional guardian. I have been guardian over many people down through the years, and guardianship is one of the most powerful tools that you can use or have available if you need it to preserve your estate. Should you begin to lose your faculties or have something, some disease or illness, you know, befall you, then guardianship can can preserve your estate plan the way you set it up if you have one already set. Yeah, which is why we're talking today, because some people don't. Now, sometimes people don't have an estate plan, and they end up in uh, the court system, and you sometimes end up being a guardian kind of by default, right? I describe my job as getting between the greedy and the goodies. Right. So <laughs> That always gets a laugh, doesn't it? Right? But it's true, isn't it? It yeah. surprised you. Right, which is why we're talking about blended families and, and bad blood. <laughs> you have to watch, because that's right. where it comes in a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there is a, uh, a movie, sir? Speak, up. Speak of the Michael closer. Me? Oh, Michael, no. Me. There you oh, go. Okay. All right. So there's a movie out there um, that I, I, I don't recommend it, but I do recommend it. We talked about it the other day called I Care A Lot. Have you guys seen that movie? A few people know. Okay. I think it's on Netflix, yeah? And it's about guardianship. Uh, and there are a lot of things in it. It's a fictional movie, um, thankfully, because <laughs> some of the things in it are pretty uh, awful. But there are some things in it that have some reality to it. And boy, when I watched that movie, I immediately thought to myself, thank goodness I know people who are in this industry that do have people's best interests at heart because we hear horror stories. So part of the reason that we like to do this panel and put people in front of you that we trust and have vetted is because there are movies out there like that who show you the other side of the coin. Um, and so I doubt there will be any um, Russian mafia in your life like there are in that movie, <laughs> um, but some of the, the circumstances in that movie are pertinent. So yeah, I care a lot. It's it's. Anyway, let me know if you watch it and how terrible you thought it was. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's hard when you recommend a movie. Sometimes you recommend it not because it's a good movie, but because you but because you think people should see it. Okay. So let's get started. Um, so now that you know what these guys do, um, there are several concerns that people have related to estate planning or lack thereof. Right. Which of these would you say we should start with in our discussion today? Um, would you say Oklahoma intestate succession statute, trustee and executor, or personal representative responsibilities, or guardianships and conservatorships? Jennifer, do you want to start with the Oklahoma intestate succession statute, and what is that? Sure. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, there's no way to make that sexy. Uh, I mean, it's really it's really it's <laughs> yes, it's like yes, please. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of questions that that we get are from people who, you know, we all we all make assumptions, and so I think Nikki mentioned earlier, you know, if I 
die, then my house will automatically go to my spouse. And that's an assumption that, that people make. Or, you know, if I'm not married, then everything will just, my kids can figure it out. So those are people that are, they're hesitant to do planning and they think things will just happen for them. Well, if you're not planning, you're actually, you are making a plan. You're choosing the plan that's in our Oklahoma statutes. And everybody laughed earlier when Nikki said, oh, the state will take care of it. Well, the state has provided you with an estate plan in our Oklahoma statutes, but it may not be the plan that you would choose for yourself. So when you're not planning, you're actually, you're, you are choosing a plan that's been done for you by our Oklahoma legislature. And they're really not the ones that I would want to write my estate plan. So, um, so tell me about the kid thing. Let's start yes. with that one. If, if somebody has kids, what does the state statute say? If they have a plan, what automatically happens? So in our statute for intestate succession, which is in Title 84, the Oklahoma statutes, it goes through a bunch of different scenarios. So if you are married and you have kids, and um, your the spouse is deceased that deceased spouse's estate will go part to the surviving spouse and part to the kids so most people think we've been married 40 years we've got three kids together and, you know if my spouse dies everything should go to my surviving spouse that's what most people think but that's not what the statute actually says so half will go to your spouse and half will go to the kids so I've seen that play out in some interesting ways where we had um, somebody pass away and they left a spouse and minor children. And so the house ends up being owned by the surviving spouse and then minor children. And I always thought that would be hard for that parent to say, you know, not in my house because the kid's going to come back and say, it's my house too, you know, so. <laughs> so um, you know, that's something that is surprising to people. And, you know, as far as what assets would be subject to probate, which is where we see this play out, is in the probate court, it would only be assets that are in that person's individual name, where there's not a beneficiary named, and it's not owned in joint tenancy. So, if your home is owned in joint tenancy with the right of survivorship, then that house would go to the surviving spouse at your death, but it has to have that magic language in the deed. Um, if it doesn't, you know, if it just says that your husband and wife, but it doesn't have that language, then under the law, that's called tenants in common. So you each own 50%. So half of the house would essentially have to go through the now, now who decides how that's going to be deeded jennifer you know i've been in real estate a long time and that question rarely comes up when somebody's closing on a house how do you know how it's deeded um i don't know i mean i would encourage people to to look at their deeds i mean it should be something that is discussed during the process when you're closing on the house but i've had a lot of people come to me and they They'll say, well, my spouse died and I went down to the county clerk's office with a copy of the death certificate to get their name off of the property. And the county clerk said, you can't do that. You're gonna have to go see an attorney because their house was not titled correctly. And you know, it's 
shocking when they've lived there right. 40 years right. um, to, to learn that information. And, you know, I see it a lot um, with, like, if we have, like, a sheriff's deed, things like that, maybe a different type of sale, or if it was something that they handled privately right. um, without a realtor, yeah. those type of things. Yeah. Um, people are just filling out a form, and they don't realize that they, they didn't have the right language in that deed. Yeah, so you guys know I'm from a small town, and uh, a lot of stuff is done on handshake. And my dad, I can promise you, uh, when you do a quick claim deed, that he didn't worry about how that was deeded. I mean, you know, it was whatever they drew up, he signed it because he didn't think about that. And so, if if that was if it was a private transaction, or you did it through a bank, or you did it on the side without any kind of title company involved or real estate agent involved, you probably should check on that for sure. Yeah. Um, so, Kendra, you guys manage trusts, and yes. right, and so um, the, the people who have done a trust obviously have done some estate planning. Correct. Um, and so, some of the problems that Jennifer just described have surely been all dealt with in those trusts, right? Not necessarily. So we have this trust, this amazing just governing document that tells us, you know, what they want, what you want to have happen, and how you want it to have happen, and who gets what, and all of these wonderful things. Big part of that trust that a lot of people fail to do is fund their trust. And funding your trust is a very fancy way of saying you're changing the title of all of your stuff into the name of your trust. Bank accounts, deeds. So we want to make sure that everything is titled appropriately. So I mean, I have a case right now actually in probate court because a deed was never filed properly for a large piece of real estate. So whose who's job is it to fund the trust? So personally, you know, I work hand in hand with all of the attorneys my clients prefer to use. However, sometimes I will inherit a relationship or something to that effect and as we're looking at asset acquisition and trying to get a schedule of assets and as we're kind of going through the list we'll realize because I audit everything I want my clients to have a very good experience but sometimes something will come across my desk that needs some cleanup and we're happy to do that and this is one of those cases right. and so Jennifer from your end of it whose responsibility is it if somebody wants to put together a trust who funds that trust well, it depends. That's a very lawyer answer, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so with our estate plans that we do, we discuss the funding process multiple times with our clients, and we handle funding all of the real estate, so um, your residence, mineral rights are also considered real property in Oklahoma, so title has to be changed. Uh, anything like that we're going to make sure we take care of and then we go over specific instructions including a checklist as far as changing your bank accounts changing your brokerage accounts and usually I'm working hand-in-hand -hand with the clients financial advisor and things like that and so we will Sorry. send the information to the financial advisor that they need to get those accounts switched over so it's kind of a combination of the client's responsibility and then there are tasks that we do, but it's very clear uh, when they leave my office who's doing what because we have a checklist. So Yeah, I know I've heard, heard you say in the past you don't like letting the clients say they're going to do it themselves. 
Yeah, because it often doesn't get done right. and then later, yeah, so. And yeah. things have changed over the years. So used to, we would handle most of the funding, but because a lot of things have moved online, it makes it really difficult with the security features and things like that for us to do the client's funding. And it's actually much easier for the client to do that themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there are things that we don't do now that maybe we used to do because it's going to actually be easier and more cost effective for the clients to handle. But you provide them with instructions exactly. on how yeah. to do that. Yeah. yeah, and I work hand in hand with any attorney that I work with or that I refer to. 100% of them will take care of all of the real property deeds. I mean, when the client executes their documents, they're executing their deeds to have everything transferred over. They are filed for the client, which makes it nice, and then I track it to make sure that everything's loaded properly and they don't like getting more than about four or five phone calls. Have you done your checking account yet? Have you okay. called your broker? Finally, they'll do it. Yes, yeah. okay. I will now. Yeah. <laughs> you're the daughter that everybody needs to have, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so John, you know, you let's say you're in court and uh, someone is in need of oversight, let's call it that, right? Because they're incapacitated for whatever reason, whether it's a mental health issue or a legal issue, and you've been assigned, or is it called assigned by the court, appointed by the court? Appointed, appointed by the court to be a guardian. How many of those folks that you uh, inherit as a, as a appointed guardian have done their estate planning, would you say? Very few. Very few? Very few. And so if they have, if they're living, and you're now the guardian, which means you're responsible for them, right? Correct. Does that mean financially and physically or some of each? How does that, what does that mean? There are several different kinds of guardianship. If I'm appointed as a general guardian, I'm generally in charge of financial, health care, and all of that. But you can, you can give a guardianship for health care to someone else other than your guardian for your estate. That sort of thing. So, your general guardian, guardian of the estate, uh, health care, uh, that sort of thing. They can all be, you know, in one, or they could be farmed out, so to speak, to different people. So now, let's say that you're the guardian, and you realize that this person has no estate planning. They didn't do a will. They don't have a trust. They don't have uh, any documents signed, advance directives, and stuff. Um, what is your responsibility as a guardian for helping them? Because you're not an attorney. So how do you help them get that done? Once a guardian has been appointed, it's difficult to do the estate planning because you're not supposed to change anything. And so I don't, I, I haven't had one where I did a, a full estate plan after being appointed guardian. What I'm doing is preserving what they have and where it sits. So and it's a very powerful tool. So it's better to do it, if you're gonna do an estate plan, you can't really do it, like you can't say, well, if something happens and I can no longer care for myself, I'll get an estate plan done. Doesn't work that way, does it? Yeah, so Jennifer, if somebody's got a guardian and they come to you and they say, I, I need to do my estate plan, can they little, legally do their estate plan without the guardian involved? Now there, now, there is a statute that says they can sign, you can sign a will when you're under the guardianship if, if you, you know, if you're able to make those decisions. But usually if somebody is fully incapacitated, the court has determined that they are no longer able to make decisions about their finances and their health care. 
So the, that one exception that you can do the will would probably be the instance where somebody is maybe partially incapacitated and that will has to be executed in front of the judge. And so I have never done estate planning for somebody that's under a guardianship. Um, I have done estate planning for people who've been diagnosed with, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, it really is based on the person and, you know, how cognizant they are. And we do like an in-depth interview with them. And if I feel comfortable that they understand what they're doing, if it makes sense to me, their decisions, then we will move forward with their planning at that time. So, but yes, it's always better to, to do the planning in advance. You don't want to wait uh, and put those things off. So. Okay, so I asked each of you to kind of be thinking about what I call cautionary tales, right, as it relates to your experiences with people. And I asked them if they could all come up with one, and they laughed at me because they have like 100 each. <laughs> so I had to have them pick one. But So I would like for you guys to maybe share with the audience a story that comes to mind when it pertains to the state planning process. and. Um, how it played out and how you maybe would wish people would solve that problem if they could. So, um, Jennifer, we'll start on your end. Yeah, work our way down. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Cautionary tale number one. Okay. Um, so, we had a, a situation with today's topic is blended family, so I tried to focus on, on that um, topic. And we had uh, a situation where we had a married couple, blended family, and she's got her kids and he's got his kids and they really didn't didn't do any planning um, in advance at all and he started becoming incapacitated uh, with dementia and Alzheimer's and spouse decided that now she's gonna go do her estate planning and she had a trust set up the problem is that she transferred all of their joint assets into her trust <laughs> and you could do that well she was able to oh, and I, I mean so this is why this case is now in in litigation um, because you know she she ended up dying first too which I don't think is what she expected to happen um, but now we've got a situation where we have assets that should be available to provide for his care because they were his assets or their joint assets and they are in her trust and so it's you know it's a real problem that probably could have been prevented if they had both done planning um, before before he started losing capacity so what will so. happen you think i mean can you play that out in your mind how that will play out well, the, I mean, I guess the good thing in this case is that we believe the assets are still there. Uh, and so, you know, it will have to play out through the court system and a lawsuit's gonna have to be filed to get the assets out of her trust and back into his name. And he is under a guardianship because again, there wasn't any planning in place. So his daughters are his guardian and they're pursuing this. Um, lawsuit to help get his assets back. So who's paying for all this? His children. Yeah. yeah. Cautionary tale number one. I hope we got some ahas from that. 
Good job. Okay, I'm going to talk about the bad blood aspect, even if it's within your nuclear family with a maybe a first marriage. I currently have a situation that I had to kind of watch unfold where we were the trustee, so planning was done. However, we have two children who are within about four or five years of age and both probably in their 50s and absolutely hate each other. Their, their children get along really well and when mom and dad were around, they would put on a brave face for the sake of the kids. Mom and dad are gone and it is back to an all-out drag-out fight where I had to secure the house with a locksmith and when we were trying to divvy up personal property, because the plan was, you know, each daughter gets to pick a thing. Well, of course they want the same thing. <laughs> no, no. We, and then, you know, it was threatening litigation over, I think, what was a $6 rabbit figurine. But it was mom's, and we both want it, and by golly, we'll pay thousands of dollars to get this $6 thing. Uh, we had to get out a deck of cards and shuffle them, and high card got to go in first. It, and it took days to get this done because they just could not stand the sight of each other. And this is with a good plan. So those who don't have a good plan, you're going to see unsavory individuals, unfortunately some may be children, stepchildren, cousins, people will come out of the woodwork if they think you have something of value. You know, I had a client pass away, the funeral wasn't even, uh, hadn't even happened yet, we get a call and it was the day of and it was hey we have people pulling into the parking lot with a trailer who had driven about 10 hours to come and try to empty the contents while the funeral was happening yeah so be very aware and really line out who is going to get what because it will mitigate a ton of fighting i cannot tell you how many times i've been able to pull out the documents and say no you're not getting this she's getting this because of these reasons, you're going to get X, Y, Z. If you want to be mad, you can be mad at your late parents, but these are their wishes and you will respect them. And it kind of makes me a little bit of the bad guy, which is fine. If I wasn't comfortable with that, I should not be in this job. But it, it really helps keep the peace in the family and mitigate that bad blood. Oh, let me share with you my aha moment that I just had. You're a corporate trustee. Yes. You're you're unattached. Correct. You have no skin in the game. That figurine is not yours to have. No. Only you care, right? Yeah. But you're following instructions. Exactly. So what happens if, let's say, you weren't the corporate trustee and instead one of the daughters was the trustee? The daughter with the the daughter serving as trustee would be, you know, an individual trustee. They're not going to be held to the same standard that I'm held to. And I cannot tell you how many times I've seen it. And I mean. 99% of the time you are going to see that one child grossly favor themselves or I have no idea where that rabbit figurine went I don't know I'll help you find it in my house that I took two days ago or I've, I've even heard it say well I'm the trustee so therefore it's my decision, it's my decision. yes yeah. yes and so yeah and so the other children or the other heirs are just out of luck. That's correct. And their only recourse then is, I guess, a lawsuit? Yes. Okay. Uh, Don, cautionary tale number three. Okay. Setup is I uh, had a client that uh, his wife had passed away about a year before I was appointed guardian. They were a referral from another case that I had. And 
the man was still living in their home, uh, couldn't fully take care of himself, but once a family member died, I don't remember what relation, but everybody came to Oklahoma City for the funeral, but not all of them went back home. Some of them came from Mesa Verde, Texas, and they stayed. And they started in with, oh, Uncle so-and-so, we've always loved you, we've always you know, thought a lot about you, you've always been our favorite uncle, this kind of thing. Let me ask you a question, because this is going to be important later on. Who in this room knows what a Henry J is? Henry J. Car. It's a car. They went out of business back, I think, in the early to mid-50s. Yes, Henry J. Kaiser. And this guy had a 53 Henry J. Kaiser under his carport. And I spoke to a relative later on in Mesa Verde, Texas, and the car had disappeared. And they told me that uh, one of their other relatives had uh, told them that, that he always loved a Henry J and wanted one, and so-and-so's got one, I want one just like it. Well, you gotta go talk to Uncle Homer. So he came and talked to Uncle Homer and the car disappeared. And they, they stayed in his house and things were beginning to, you know, go out the door and this kind of stuff. Were they staying in his house because they cared about him and they wanted to help take care of him? I think it was to fleece him. Yeah, but under the guise of... Under the guise right. of caring and all this kind of stuff. So I had to engage the services of uh, a home sitting service, Visiting Angels was who I used. And the one out on Mustang Road is uh, another guy who is the franchisee, used to live a couple doors down. He's very good, they're very honest, they're very conscientious. And when people come in to steal from someone, like Uncle Homer, they come on a Wednesday night because everybody else is at church, like your bunch came when the funeral was on, or they'll come Saturday night if they're in a nursing home because that's when the staff is at minimum. So knowing this, and there were two etchings. Uh, one of these thieves had a son who was extremely talented. There were two etchings in that home, one of Stanley Laurel and the other one of Hardy, Oliver Hardy. They were beautiful. I mean, this was professional stuff. And so I knew that they wouldn't leave town without those, so I took them and put them in my house. I didn't steal them. I wanted to make sure I got face to face with them before they left town. And sure enough, on a Wednesday night, about eight o'clock, I get a call from Visiting Angels. And she said, you were right, they're back in town. They're there now, the police are there, and they're waiting on you. And I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. So I drive over, I in fact passed the police car on the way over, and he was going to the same call. He pulled in behind me. I thought I was gonna get a ticket, but we had other, other things to talk about. So I pulled up and swing the door open, and they say, are you John? I said, yes, and I have paperwork. And it was a temporary guardianship appointment. Police officer looked at it. He said, okay, what are you gonna do? And I said, tell me something. There was a truck in a small enclosed trailer parked out in front of the house. And uh, they were gonna load up the riding lawnmower and all the garden outdoor equipment and all that kind of stuff they could, haul it up to Kansas and sell it. But they're from Mason Verde, Texas. See, so anyway, I said, what do you think the odds are they brought all of this stuff down here they're wanting to load up and haul back? so that they could do his yard, he said, zero. And I said, same here. So here's what I need. Before they can load anything, I need to see a retail receipt with the serial number or ID number of the equipment on it. 
they didn't have that. And they're all sitting out on the driveway, and the ward is calling me everything, every name in the book, because he was so, you know, he thought they loved him so much he was going to give them everything. And and when when I told the policeman this and he told them that, there's a lady sitting there by Homer going, but he said, but he said, but he said, and the, the policeman interrupted her and said, Lady, nothing that man says to you constitutes proof of ownership because he has a guardian. So I told the policeman, I said, okay, there's stuff in the house that they want. Uh, there hasn't been a woman living in this house. His wife died over a year ago, so there hasn't been a woman living in this house. If they're laying claim to women's clothing or anything that you know is, would be, obviously be a woman's possession, I don't care. I have no issue with that. But the rest of it, I have issues with. So we started cleaning out the house, and then the, the, the etchings came up, and I said, I have them. I'm not going to keep them. I just wanted to make sure we got face-to-face -face before you left town. I will go get them and bring them to you when this is over. And that's what we did. But we cleaned out what they wanted. They loaded stuff up. And then as we're going out, they've, they've already gone out for the last time. And the policeman comes to me that was kind of in charge of the whole operation. He said, are you going to ban them from coming here? I said, yes, absolutely. As he went out the front door and down the steps, I heard him go, yes! <laughs> so do you have to file a restraining order then? Nope. I heard him say, I wasn't out there to witness it, but I heard him say, okay. He's talking to the people that were there. There were three or four of them. He said, your business here on this property is done. There's nothing else. There's no other reason for you to be here. So you are to leave and go up to I-40, and John will meet you there and bring you the etchings. But I'm here to tell you, if I ever catch you on this property again, I will take you to jail myself. So that was enough at that point. But otherwise, if they came back, you'd have to follow a restraining order. Yeah. Well, I called the police and they take them to jail. But for that. Because for you trespassing. Were, and they were stealing from you as the guardian. That's I mean, right. right. So, okay, so let me just, I'm going to get my head around this real quick. So if this gentleman did not have a guardian uh, and is incapacitated, he could essentially, at that point, have had nothing, right? And nobody had any, there would be no recourse whatsoever, right? That's right. I, I think we all know people in that circumstance, and unfortunately, I think it happens more times than not, um, and we don't know about it. I've had clients tell me they're embarrassed to tell me. I'll say, well, where's the picture that was above your, your sofa? You know, because it's clear there was a picture there. Oh, well, my niece came into town, and she loves that picture, so I gave it to her. And I'm thinking, okay, well that's legit as long as someone is has capacity. But if someone has dementia or bipolar disorder or they have some mental illness, then they don't really they're not really making this doesn't make sense that they're doing it, then there's somebody taking advantage of them. And if they don't have a guardian in place, there's really nobody that can stop that from happening. Yeah. Um, let me ask the real quick, just as a point of comparison, does a trustee uh, when someone has a trust and is incapacitated, serve in a similar capacity. So you would have basically the same job that he just described if, if you were managing somebody's trust, yeah? Uh, yes, so while I am by no means going to make healthcare decisions for anybody, I am not qualified, it is not what I do, I will be securing the property, I will be securing the assets. And Whether they're living or deceased, yes? Correct, yes. And somebody trying to abscond with them who is not maybe the most savory person or is not written into the document to receive it, 
is going to have about six foot one of a very upset me and a sheriff. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so this person that you described, John, has, is he still living? No, he passed yeah. away. Okay, so did he pass away in test state, no will? Uh, no, he, I think he had a son who lived in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and they liquidated the estate after he passed. Okay, whatever was left of it. Whatever was left. Okay, all right. Oh, you guys getting the, the drift here? Okay, do we want to do cautionary tale number four, Jennifer? Sure. And then we'll open it up for questions? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, oh, I mean, John made me think of one that we had recently where it's a similar situation, but the person had, had passed away and immediately the the niece was coming into the house removing assets and so I got a call at like six o'clock um, in the evening and was able to call them back and get some information and then the next day what we have to do in that scenario is we have to go file like an emergency probate so we got all the paperwork done we got documents signed and we were able to we got to the courthouse like right before five which is not ideal because you never know if the judge is even going to be there or not but thankfully he was and we were able to get it signed um, and get them appointed as it's called a special administrator um, to safeguard the assets and so they were able to go meet a locksmith and get the locks changed and secure everything but things were taken um, in the interim and so we were able to go to court and get an order that the items be brought back but there are some things that we don't know you know and uh, I mean what do you do in that scenario you know and one person says they, they don't have them and the other people say well they were there and now they're gone so um, they could have given them to a neighbor they could have somebody could have taken them so it's yeah a difficult situation so before we go to questions I do want to open up a can of worms with all of you about the um, uh, second marriages and without prenuptials of any kind um, what happens when someone is married um, they've been married let's say they've been married 20 years but he has kids and she has kids and there's really been no uh, estate planning involved other than they maybe have wills um, what happens to um, what happens uh, when one of them passes away to their assets that let's say the next the spouse gets everything that's left what happens Kendra you want to take that one sure happy to take that one um, I have in my entire near 19 years in this career seen only one time where it worked out well one time <laughs> and that was in the last six months so there's a first time for everything, but usually without planning, with a blended family, he who passes first or is incapacitated first, their family usually loses. And you're going to see the surviving spouse's family be basically set up with the other side getting nothing. That's what I've seen. Why does that happen? I mean, what's, is it that illegal? Is it the succession thing that we're it's, talking it's, about? If it's assets held, you know, jointly with rights of survivorship, you know, and you have somebody pass away, it's now that surviving spouse's property. Granted, it's set up that way. And they can do what they want, when they want, all the time with those assets. And odds are they're going to favor their own children. Yeah. So the kids of the spouse who passes first may not have any inheritance whatsoever, even if that person had years of planning and saving. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we, I mean, we have this right now. We have a case, and they, one spouse died, and then the surviving spouse died like two months later, and everything is going to the surviving spouse's children because they own most of their assets jointly. Um, so, yeah. and that just could have easily been handled with with proper planning. Sure. So, I was going to comment about prenuptial agreements too. A lot of times they get a bad rap because people associate that with divorce. But in in my world, prenuptial agreements are a good thing because when you get married, there are certain rights that just attach as a matter of law. Uh, when you get married in Oklahoma, if you're married without a prenuptial agreement, the surviving spouse automatically has a homestead right. So that means that you can live in the house the rest of your life. Uh, nobody can can kick you out, and that may be you know maybe a good thing. Um, and then there, the surviving spouse has a right to to serve as personal representative of the estate, and there are a number of things that that attach. And so what a prenuptial agreement does is you can waive those rights, so it allows you really to do the planning that you want to do. Um, and so a lot of times when people get remarried later in life, they've already got their assets and they want to make sure that their assets go to their kids and you know their spouse may be the same way and I use my own mother as an example because she got married several years ago, remarried and uh, I love her husband to death, uh, my stepfather, but I know he's got, he's got his own kids and he wants to make sure that his assets go to his children at his death and she wants to make sure that my sister and I are taken care of and so I said well you guys have to get a prenup and that way you can make that happen because otherwise it's going to be complicated and I know that I'm going to be the one <laughs> dealing with it and so they got a prenup they understood why you know after we explained it and when you do a prenuptial agreement like that the the other spouse has their own attorney, so you each have to have independent counsel in order for it to be valid as well. So, you know, um, one additional thing to that conversation, I had mentioned to you guys that we had sat with a woman uh, who was contemplating selling a house, and we sat with her, and she was distraught because they were not married. She and the gentleman who owned the house together, he passed away. She had no children of her own, but he had children. And the house essentially was not hers. It was his. But he kept saying to her, she said, throughout their long relationship, my kids will make sure you're taken care of. <laughs> and the way that they were making sure that she was taken care of is they wanted the house sold and out. And so she... All she had was her social security, and so does she have any claim to that house whatsoever? Um, if she's been with this person for, you know, let's say 20 years, I don't remember the exact number, but. So Nikki's talking about or alluding to common law marriage, which um, is is something that exists in Oklahoma. There's not a clear-cut rule, so some people will call our office and say, well, I've been we've been living together for five years, is that common law marriage? Well, there's not a you know hard and fast rule as far as what is and what isn't. But what the courts do is they look at a number of factors. And so those are, you know, was the relationship permanent? Was it exclusive? 
Did you hold yourself out as husband and wife? Did you cohabitate? Um, so there's a number of factors that the courts will look at. And then you have to have an agreement to be married. So you really have to call yourself husband and wife. You had an agreement to be married. So just living with someone is not going to make you the common law spouse. Um, usually when I get those calls, I will decline to represent them because I don't feel like it's going to be enough to prove in court. Uh, we've got, I've got two clients right now who are common law spouse and I took the case because I really feel like they are the, the spouse. Yeah. So. Oh, the other thing I've seen happen is that they do make provisions for the surviving spouse to live in the house through some sort of a, a life estate or something. Um, problem is they don't leave them with any assets to take care of the house so they can't actually afford to keep the house. So that's the other issue I see as well. Okay, you guys ready to open it up for questions? And we'll see what these guys... One last thing to... that might help out. When I have a case where I think these kinds of issues are going to lead to a conflict, I, I advise the either my ward or if I'm... I do small trust underneath their radar. Uh, don't compete with these guys. But anyway, uh, if I think this situation might arise where there's a dispute over things like figurines and whatnot, I, I advise them to have a party. Get everybody that's interested together and let grandma or grandpa give things away while everybody's there to witness it. Then nobody can say, she said she was gonna give that to me if she gave it to Brother Joe. Yeah. Or take stickers. If you don't, if everybody's far removed, get stickers and write the name of the person you want to have it and put it on the bottom. That way, your handwriting is unmistakable. They can't argue with that. And it, it does cut down on these kinds of conflicts. As a beneficiary of my late grandparents' trust and their wishes, when they were moving into assisted living, they did exactly that. It was, it was a party afterward, but they had laid out all of the assets that they, you know, physical tangible items that they wanted to gift to the family. And there was, I had always grown up wanting this antique jukebox. It was just the coolest thing, and ever since I was old enough to walk, I was just mesmerized by it, and I still am. And it was to the side, and it had a sticker on it that had my name on it. But everyone got something that they knew we all really wanted, and so they got to enjoy kind of their golden years watching all of us enjoy it. There were no hard feelings, and it was just a really lovely time. It really was, and I have that. My husband's restoring it, so it'll go right back into my house. It's a great way to honor them. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, good advice. Really good. Okay, so um, we're going to take some questions. Chris, what I think one thing is just share that guardian. People look at guardianships as something that's a problem or shameful or why did it get there. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to address that. because So like a voluntary guardianship. What maybe a volunteer yeah. or even an involuntary one because it needs to be done due to mental health issues. It's, it's a hard thing to step up and do. I think of... Okay, so just, so you want to address yeah. guardianship yeah, I, I having the stigma versus... Yeah. Yes, uh, I've had several cases, and let me tell you, the Oklahoma County judges in guardianship and probate, there's been some changes lately, but up until a year ago or so, they they were top-notch all the way across. And I don't have any anything about the ones that are there now. I just haven't been in front of them because of the pandemic. But... 
those guys will sit down. I've been in court with someone that we had proposed a guardianship for, and the judge very gently talks to them and questions them. And, and you know, you need, you, you think you need help with your finances, you know, this kind of stuff. And a lot of times, because it's the judge talking quietly, not adversarially, they will answer the questions truthfully. And then you make, you know, he goes ahead and makes the appointment or not. I've never had one denied because you do your homework before you go in there. But where there's somebody who's reticent to, to you know, admit to all this, there's a way around that and it works. Yeah. So the other guardianship that we hear about uh, frequently is when someone is in uh, nursing care uh, and they are, they, maybe they have Alzheimer's, maybe they have other, another illness, but, and they're not making their, they're not able to pay their bills. And that nursing community's got to get paid, and paperwork's got to be filled out if they're getting assistance and that kind of thing. And if there's nobody there to do that legally, they either have to have a, a guardian, outside guardian, or sometimes what's happening is the senior living community that they're living in, the nursing care community, is becoming the guardian. And that makes me very nervous um, when you are giving a third-party person charge in charge of to make, be char in charge of your finances basically um, uh, you guys have any thoughts on that how to avoid that happening I mean again it's really just about planning in advance and making those decisions for yourself because if you don't then somebody else is going to make those for you but yes like you it would it makes me uncomfortable yeah. thinking about you know the the people who are getting money from you to pay for your care also being in charge of your finances. That's what we call a conflict of interest. Slide. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you if you don't have family and I've had clients that don't have you know, they don't have anyone that is going to be able to do that. Or maybe they have family but they know they don't want that family to be in charge. That's when we put them in contact with, you know, somebody like John, and they can talk to that person and make that decision, is this who I want? Or a cor corporate trustees will, you know, serve in that role, um, you know, like as power of attorney over finances, not healthcare decisions. Yes, so. So the key to all of this, what I hear you saying, is make those decisions early and then document them appropriately, right? Correct. So that you're not doing it when you're in crisis. Yeah. Right. A guardian can go to court and, and say, here's our financial condition. We've got to sell the house. There's no way around it. And sometimes you may have already had an offer on it. Uh, but what the judges like to see is that you've already been through the process of taking bids, showing the property and that kind of stuff. And then here's the highest bid and they will approve that. That's what one of the things I was referring to when I said these guys up here in Oklahoma County are among the best I've seen. So they're they're holding the guardian accountable to a process. Like you can't sell it to your buddy so he can go flip it. That's the yeah. highest bid. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's open it up for questions and um, I'll take hands. So um, Leonard up here first and then I'll get back here. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I'll repeat the question so those of you can't hear it. Yeah. Lois, and then we had our joint trustee. Our decision was to 
decision was if one of the spouses died, the other spouse could live in that house as long as they wanted. And then when it's sold, it would be divided between the children's family. I think it was in the trust, I thought it was in the trust, but to make sure, we wrote a letter saying just that and had it notarized. The trust does cover that. But if it didn't, I've been told that that letter would not be legally accepted. Right, yeah, so you want to make sure the property is deeded correctly to the trust. So the, the, the scenario is he has a trust, she has a trust, they have a trust, and then they added a handwritten letter as a kind of a supplement just to clarify, and his question is, does that handwritten letter uh, have any validity, basically? Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, that's kind of one of those specific questions that we could, you know, I'd be happy to look at that for you. And they're, you know, they've got times that we can set up. Yeah. It's legit, but I'm just wondering, why is that notarized letter? Because it, you know, because it may not meet the requirements to be an, an amendment to the trust. And so if you're, if the property is titled in the name of the trust, the trust document will control. So this outside letter would not control unless it qualifies as an amendment to the trust. Or if the property is just in your individual names and not the trust, hopefully you have pour over wills, but it would have to go through probate. So that's why it's important how the property is titled and that your wishes are clearly defined in the trust. And so if you have, um, you know, sometimes with blended families, we do separate trusts. I have another couple I did planning for. We did a joint trust like that, and we also did separate trusts for the two of them. So there are multiple ways that you can handle those um, things, and so it would depend on which trust your house is titled in, and then you want to make sure that that trust document addresses how that property is supposed to be handled. Um, I was going to say, in that scenario, one of the things that we were talking about, the consult situation that Jennifer and Arbest and these guys have agreed to do, is, is to review that kind of thing and say, this is our, either this looks great seems good to me or this is a problem that needs to be fixed at which point you can either take it back to your attorney and have it fixed or you can choose to hire them to do it but the whole point of these kind of labs that we call them afterward is for you to take action on those kind of things and I, I, what i hear you saying about the handwritten like supplement letter what i in my mind i'm thinking well you take that sub supplement letter and you take it to the attorney and you say let's make sure that my documents read the way that this letter says it should read and then because that ultimately that legal document is going to prevail right right yeah. and if, if there's something that's ambiguous then that's when we end up in court which is what you're trying to avoid in doing a trust is you're trying to avoid going to court mm -hmm. but it, when we have extraneous documents or when people handwrite on their estate planning documents those are the things that end up going to court where we have to ask the court to interpret the documents yeah which is what you're trying to avoid to begin with right? yes yeah. okay good that was a great question yes back here betty you know what hang on before we do that since we have two mics up here let's jake would you run the mic for us and let's make sure that way because some of these questions are a little bit lengthy 
Thank you. Uh, in what instance would children be able to contest a will? For example, you set up your will for whoever you want to, to have your assets. You have, say, insurance policies, you name your beneficiary. Now, out of all these documents that have your assets, you have certain children that you don't want to have anything. Is there something specific under Oklahoma statutes that could allow the child who's not uh, in the will to contest it? So there are incontestability provisions that you can put in your legal documents, but I'm gonna let Jennifer. <laughs> a child or uh, that you specifically want to disinherit is what we call it that should definitely be mentioned in your will and your trust so you say I have three children these are their names uh, and how how I typically word it is though I'm mindful of so-and-so I have intentionally not provided for them in my trust or my will, and therefore they would be—they are considered to have predeceased me, and so they're not getting anything. Um, so that was one of your questions. So you want to to mention them, and I. This is something we have to go over with people when we when we meet and talk about their estate planning. Is they fill out a worksheet for me and they list their family. And I'll ask, are there any other children that you have? Do you have any deceased children? I, I need everything. And we've actually now added language to our wills and our trusts that also say, if there's somebody else out there, <laughs> unless I have specifically named somebody as a beneficiary, I am disinheriting everybody else. Because what has been interesting lately is with the 23andMe and the um, Ancestry, you, <laughs> there are surprises that happen. <laughs> and so, you know, that needs to be addressed. And then some um, of the people in the room are going, oh no. <laughs> like, I mean, you can just see the looks on people's faces. Like, uh, they're, they're going back through the mental Rolodex. <laughs> and then the second, the other question that you asked was, what are the instances when somebody could contest a, a will or a trust? So in general, um, the, the reasons that you could contest the validity of the document would be if the person lacked capacity at the time that they signed the document. So that means they didn't have the mental capacity to do their planning. And the other reason is that, that they were under undue influence. So somebody talked them into doing this. And uh, those are difficult things to prove in court. Um, we've handled several cases like that, but it can be a difficult thing to prove. And then the no contest provision that is typically included in the trust would say, or the will says, if anybody contests the validity of this instrument or brings any legal proceeding to set aside, my wishes, then they will not get whatever it is that I left them. So sometimes if we are going to omit a child 
um, or an heir, I will encourage my clients to leave them something. Um, whatever amount they think it would be enough incentive for them not to fight about it. So, um, so sometimes we'll do that. You know, leave them a specific distribution of $20,000 and that's all they get. Then they know if they file a lawsuit, it won't get that. they won't get that. So, um, just while you're on this topic real quick, could you address the stepchildren and adopted children issue as well, and maybe even foster children and how they play into that statute? Sure. So, um, in Oklahoma, if, if you are a person that was adopted, you can inherit from both your adopted family and your birth family. And so, if you are a if you're an individual that maybe gave up a child for adoption and you've never had a relationship with that child and you would not want them to inherit your estate, they also would need to be excluded in your estate planning documents. So that's important to know. Stepchildren will not um, not inherit, you know, from from their step parent. And you know, if clients want to include their stepchildren, then we have to address that. Okay, yeah. so stepchildren are not considered just automatically inheriting. You have right. to name them. Okay, okay. okay great. Um, did we cover that, Betty? Yeah? Well, for the uh, beneficiary aspect, once you name a beneficiary, that's a no-brainer, meaning they can't. Once you name a beneficiary, they, yeah, nobody so can contest you, that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say anything can always be contested. So even if you you know, but in general, if you if you name beneficiaries on like your life insurance or your retirement accounts, then those funds will go directly to the people that you've named. Um, an exception would be if you named your spouse and then you get divorced. There's a statute that says that those beneficiary designations would be revoked. However, there are certain types of plans where that wouldn't be the case. So sometimes it depends. Um, you can contest ben beneficiary designations also if the person lacked capacity. So if they didn't have the capacity to put that name on the beneficiary designation form, then that can be contested. Okay, Jay, do you have another question back here? Yep. Yes, how is the duty of guardian... How is the duty of guardian guardianship funded? How is the duty of guardianship funded? So who pays for that? Yeah. Yep. That usually comes out of the assets of the estate of the uh, ward. So how does that work, John? Uh, does that, is it paid through the court system? Uh, how, how is it, what's the? Guardians have to do an annual report to the court when there's financial dealings. And so if you're guardian of the estate, then you have to account for all your expenditures through the year. And at the time you file your report, then you also, as a guardian, you put in a, a bill for your services for the past year. And if no one contests that, if there's no objection to it, then the judge approves it and you write yourself a check. Okay, okay. so, and so you charge hourly, right? So you, Correct. yeah. And Jennifer, you mentioned to me the other day about an attorney that you had to review a guardian, was it a guardianship? Yeah, could you talk about that? So John just talked about the function of how he gets paid. Jennifer is an attorney and she had to review somebody who submitted one of those bills. How did that play out? 
So I was appointed by one of our judges in Oklahoma County um, on a case because he got one of these applications for approval of the guardian fees and it was an amount that was so shocking to him that he thought it needed to be looked at. And so it was um, a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to submit a very detailed report to the court and then there was a hearing on that. Um, and so, I mean, that would be one of those circumstances that's, that's maybe not as common, more along the lines of the movie that right. yeah. <laughs> you mentioned. Right. So there are those things that unfortunately do happen where um, people are taken advantage of yeah. with guardianship. It is reviewed by the court, and the court is supposed to look at those things. And in this circumstance, the judge did a good job in recognizing that there was a problem um, with somebody taking advantage of, of the world's funds. And unfortunately, it was somebody in my profession that did that. And so, um, you know, those things, they, unfortunately, they do happen. Uh, so what happens if somebody's indigent and they really don't have much of an estate? How, how Can they have a guardian? And is that something that's funded somewhere, somehow? Or, John, do you know? <laughs> there is a thing called guardian ad litem. And they may serve without without compensation. Uh, like I a volunteer. Yeah. 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 Something I wanted to mention earlier that this uh, just dawned on me after you had talked about uh, the guardian being quite advantageous to themselves. Whenever you're selecting the person who is going to either be speaking for you, if you cannot speak for yourself or act for yourself, who's going to be managing your finances to ensure that proper care is given to you, be very selective in who you choose because, again, not all trust officers are created equal, attorneys, guardians. Be very selective. Adult children. Yes, exactly. You know, I cannot tell you how many clients well, I will be just having an initial meeting with, and it's, well, who are you choosing to speak for you? Well, we're just gonna choose our, our firstborn. Oh, okay, well, if they weren't your firstborn, would you choose them? Oh, gosh, no, you know. <laughs> and we, I just sit there for a second, trying not to show the face I just gave all of you, and I said, okay, I really want you to think about that because I don't think that might be the most responsible choice. And it can be very eye-opening. It's, well, then tell me how they're equipped to handle the real property. How are they with marketable securities? Will they be able to stand up to the other kids if they get mad and everything goes sideways? What? Let's play worst-case scenario here. I play devil's advocate for all of my clients. And it's, it's very awakening. So I just want to let you know that a way to avoid some of this bad blood and some of these issues is being very selective with who you choose. Very well said, yeah. Uh, Jake, here we go. Mr. Frazee. Yes. This trust thing is very complicated. I've talked to, I have a trust. I've talked to 10 different attorneys about it. They all have 10 different opinions. But the question I'm at, the question I'm asking now is, if my daughter is, who is the trustee of my trust, and if as long 
And I think the trust gives her authority to settle my estate according to the instructions I've given her. If none of the other children, I have three other children, uh, object to anything, she d would not have to go to court. She could just settle the estate. Is that correct? If everything's funded properly in it and everyone's getting along, yeah, you shouldn't have any issues. Well, I mean, it sounds like the, you've the question covered your bases. Is another thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does funding mean? I don't yes, know. Funding. All I know is certain financial assets of mine are in that trust. Perfect. And also, uh, several are not in that trust because beneficiaries have been designated. Okay. Very good. And one thing I would just say, just to keep top of mind, but knowing that you have financial assets in your trust, just make sure that it would be sufficient enough so that your power of attorney or your successor trustee, being your daughter, could care for you if something were to happen, that she would have access to enough funds to provide for your care. I just thought of something that everyone in this room probably needs to know. If you have a power of attorney, even if you have a guardian, and you die, those offices vacate. A trust survives your death, and that's an important thing to remember. Now, in real world, I've actually handled someone's estate after they died for up to, I think 18 months was the longest one, and the judges let me do that because there was no other family. I'd been paying the bills. I knew all of the business aspects of it, and so they just let it go, but it's not supposed to. But they named you, right? So they had to name you as a personal representative? No. John. <laughs> we all, they, I think they all just kind of looked the other way, and then when we went with the final report, it was like I was appointed PR. So we did a final report and everything. There was yeah. no objection or anything like that, so uh, it, it all yeah. was copacetic. It's all good until it's not, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Tommy? If you have a trust and the surviving spouse, let me start back. You have a trust and the surviving spouse would go to the attorney who wrote up the trust and they would handle all of these issues? Or do you have to name a trust officer? Oh, good question. This would be your successor trustee. So if the surviving spouse is the successor trustee, they would be able to take care of everything with the advice of whomever they needed. You do not have to name a trust officer to serve as your successor trustee. I mean, we like it when you do, but you definitely don't have to do it. You know, we are not a one-size-fits-all type of shop. And, we're, you know, quite frankly, we're not going to be appropriate for everyone, but as long as you have your successor trustee in place and they have the ability to maneuver the way they need to, you should be okay. Uh, and I was just going to add that you you don't have to go back to the attorney that wrote the trust. Um, I mean, if I do somebody's trust, that's, that's good if they come back to me. So sometimes it makes the most sense to go back to the attorney that wrote the trust so they can tell you what your job is. So if I'm meeting with a successor trustee, we'll go over the trust and explain the trust to them. Um, if it's an individual, a lot of times they don't know what that job entails because serving as trustee is a job. Um, 
but ultimately you could go to any attorney you know that you choose um, to do that for you so and you're more at, at that point you're more advising them on how to handle the document correct the document says right? yes yeah. yeah I won't serve as a trustee I've had clients ask me that before um, which is a compliment you know they trust me that much but to me if if the attorney is drafting the documents and naming themselves to serve as trustee that's another problem in my in my eyes yeah you know i think you bring up a good point uh whoever said this made me think who you name as your successor trustee is uber critical whether it's a corporate trustee and when i think of a corporate trustee i think of two things uh, based on just my limited experience either you have a really large and complex portfolio right you have assets that need to be managed maybe you own land that's income producing or maybe you have uh, a lot of investments that need you need to make sure that they're going to continue to fund the trust right and you have say three kids and none of them have any either interest or knowledge in how to do that it makes sense to have a corporate trustee to do that the other reason uh, which in my family was the case is that you want to maintain um, a good relationship with your family members and when one person is named as the trustee then everybody else in the family is looking to that trustee and with their handout saying well can I get money can I get this can I get that and you're the bad guy when you say no and in our family we recommended a corporate trustee so that none of us were the ones uh, saying no to the other family absolutely I mean I'm a I am an, not an innocent but I am an objective third party I'm not having Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner with everyone I am adhering to the wishes of the I call them my grantors the people who have created the trust you know I am going to adhere to their wishes to the letter and if that means I'm saying no to some beneficiaries or yes to some others, but again, because I'm that objective third party, I can help keep the peace within the family so that way the siblings aren't fighting with each other. Well, and it's also an advising position. I know we've sold homes for many people who have corporate trustees. Uh, maybe the, 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 their parents were the ones that created the trust and they passed it down to their kids and now the kids go to their corporate trustee and so we're selling the house and they say well I don't really own the house it's in a trust and you'll need to go have my trust officer sign the paperwork so we go to the trust officer and the trust officer reviews everything and advises the client yeah this all looks good I'm going to sign off on it but let's say it doesn't look good it's the trust officer who's going to say you need to relook at this and, yes right and don't yes. sign off on this that, that, I've done that before protecting actually. the asset mm -hmm. for the heir Yes, we were named in a document. Uh, we were brought in kind of at the 11th hour. We had some issues with capacity, um, which is why they brought us in at the 11th hour. And we realized that there was a real estate sale that was in the process of going through for about $200,000 less than the market value of that house. And I had that thing stopped in about four hours. Yeah. But we're able to act quickly when serving as trustee and we have such a good team and I you know I'll tout our best all day long I love working there but we have such a good team with experts in real estate minerals marketable securities and so we're able to look at these things and quickly identify if there are any issues yeah. I love getting a case where it's just going to be sunshine and rainbows those are so much fun but usually that's not what I'm there for yeah you're not being paid for the sunshine and rainbows, are no. you? No. Those are just icing on the cake. Okay, I got one back here, and then I'll come up to here. Yes. 
Oh, okay. thank you so much. So much of this discussion has been helpful in regards and has leaned towards assets and money. And but as we get older, there's the, that's one side of it that's sure. so important is, is assets and money. But the other side is is, is health. And um, you know we can hire each of you to help us with our assets, with our legal and our real estate, whatever. But if someone has no one that they, no children that they feel are capable of making health decisions, or someone, or you know, just who, who or someone doesn't have any heirs, who can help someone with their health, future health decisions? You know, making advice on doctors, maybe making advice. Who? Sure. What is the the picture on how, how that yeah, that's a, great, great, that's a great question. So one of the things that you know we do at Arvest is we have a third party provider list that we put uh, providers through a pretty vigorous vetting process. And so while I never serve to make healthcare decisions, I'll pay those bills all day long. We will um, refer out to someone who's been thoroughly vetted. You know, there are a few companies locally that we have a lot of faith and confidence in. We feel provide wonderful service, wonderful medical care, or referrals for a very reasonable price. I have several clients who, you know, sadly have outlived all of their family. They're it. And they're very precious to me, but you know, I have one who has a dedicated nurse who comes to see him at minimum once a week. She takes him to all of his medical appointments. She ensures that all medications are prescribed appropriately, taken appropriately. We've arranged for grocery delivery services. You know, we make sure that a trainer is able to come to his home to help him with workouts and things like that. You know, it's it's very tailor-made, but and this is just kind of what we do at Arvest when that need comes up. So, Jennifer, did you want to add to that? Well, I was going to ask John, is that something that, would you serve as a healthcare power of attorney? Is that one of your roles? It comes with the territory if you are guardian of the person. You're going to be involved in medical decisions if there's no other family to do that. If there is family, you got to have a conversation with them about it, about where the guardian steps in. But guardian of the person, I, as guardian of the person, I've made uh, medical decisions for people. And having done this 40 years, I've seen a few things go by under the bridge. So I'm not, I'm not reticent to do that. I accept it willingly. And so let's, so, you know, what Kinder described is the ideal situation. And when someone has the assets and the, the financial means to do that, it's pretty easy to set that up. The harder part is when someone does not have means and or has limited means or all of their income or all of their uh, assets are tied up in their home. Uh, so that makes it a little harder. Uh, as Kinder said, there are companies out there that do that for a living. That's what they do. They charge for those services and I think it is worth uh, whatever they charge is worth it if you can afford it. If you cannot afford it, um, and when I say can't afford it, Chris and I have this conversation a lot. There are people who literally cannot afford it. They do not have the funds to pay the bill. And then there are people who can't afford it because they don't want to pay it. Uh, you get the difference. So if you can 
financially manage it, it is worth every penny because uh, you do have someone who has the experience and their objective. Now, if you don't, unfortunately, then you have to choose someone who is willing and able to do it without being paid or maybe on the promise that they're going to receive something in your passing, which is what a lot of family members do. I know my aunt uh, Sylvia did that with my uncle. She basically said, look, I don't have kids and you're getting half of my estate and I would expect you to take care of me in, in expectation of receiving that. So in other words, there's strings attached. If you don't take care of me, then you don't get anything. There's that option. And then if someone literally cannot and has no one and has chosen no one, that's when Adult Protective Services steps in. So the state then comes in and becomes the case manager of that person. They become their guardian, if you will and then they make those decisions. 99% of the time I've seen that happen, that person is placed in long-term care. They are gonna receive Medicaid services through long-term care, and uh, they basically are managed in that small environment by staff there, and they have a case manager through APS that comes and checks on them, uh, whatever their requisite schedule is. So I hope that helps a little bit with the, with the process. Um, we're, we're really out of time, so I'm going to take the last question, and then we're going to wrap up. And if you have a question that didn't get answered, these guys are going to hang out over here for a few minutes. Yeah. So he's got the mic. So, um, Eddie? Okay, in regards to will, for people have talked about children in uh, his own or whatever, uh, which unfortunately don't have that problem at the present time. But uh, then grandchildren, uh, do, what rights do grandchildren have? Are they buffered by the uh, children? So inheritance-wise, you mean? Right. Yeah. So if you have a child that is deceased and that child is survived by children, then those children step into their parents' shoes and they would have the same rights as their parents would to their parents' portion of, of your estate. So that's, again, one of those questions that we ask, you know, if, if somebody has a deceased child, I ask those questions. Okay, tell me about that. Um, did they have any children? And if they did, I need to know, are we providing for them or are we not? Because if not, then we have to mention them in the document by name and say that we are um, not intentionally not providing for those um, grandchildren. But if their if their parent is alive, then then the grandchildren don't have any rights to to your estate or to contest your will. All right, very good. Guys, did you learn something today? Yes, can we give them a hand, please? Really great information. Some of you are going to have to go home and have some really hard conversations, I suspect. So uh, I'm going to let you guys go ahead and uh, join your table there. And these guys all have materials that you can pick up and take with you. If you would like to schedule the consultation I mentioned, flip your evaluation form over and check the box on that. And then I have a couple of quick housekeeping announcements. Let me have a high five. Good job. Good job. Good job. Jennifer, good job. All right. You guys rock. One more round of applause for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So 
when you, if you check the box for the evaluation on the back of your evaluation, you will receive a phone call from us, probably from Naomi, and she will give you the times that are available and you can select the times. The date and, the date and time range is on there. And so, um, and so you'll get a phone call about that. All right. Um, now the evaluation form on the front, when you fill it out, Make sure you have your name on the front oh, so exactly. we can call. Yeah, sometimes people leave the name on the front blank. So if you're saying you want a, a, a consultation, you need to make sure you either put your name tag on the front or write it in so that we don't have a blank one because then you won't get a phone call. <laughs> you just won't. <laughs> okay, so really quick, while you're filling out your evals, um, let me tell you what next month is going to look like. Uh, we're going to have a talk on the truth about paying for senior living. We're going to talk about Medicare, what it does and does not cover, um, Medicaid for the same thing, long-term care insurance, uh, kind of an update on that, and then veteran benefits and life care contracts. So it's a big topic, you guys. Uh, obviously, we'll touch on uh, each of those to the best of our ability. Chris passed me a note and just said, if anyone in here is curious or doesn't know how their property is deeded, their home is deeded, you can contact our office, Buckley Realty Group, and Chris or Shannon uh, or someone on our team can pull those records. They're public records, and it's just easy for us to do because we do it all the time. So we can pull that for you um, as well. Okay, um, don't forget about the shredding and book donation day. And so you do not have to make a reservation. You just pull up in your car that day, fill your trunk. There is no limit on how much stuff we can shred. What they do is they put it in a big dumpster, they hook it on the truck, and then the truck goes up and it shreds it right there. So it's not hauled off and then shredded, it's shredded right there. The books are not shredded. The books go in a trailer and the books will go, I believe it's to the Salvation Army is where those are being donated, but we'll facilitate that. Yes, ma'am? The VA hospital also take books. We're just trying to make it convenient and so you can drop them at one spot. If you have a preference for where they go, then you'll need to arrange that. But if you just want us to handle getting them somewhere, we can certainly do that. And why books? Why are we saying books? Because books don't sell very well at estate sales, and it's one of the number one reasons that people don't declutter. So get those books on out of there, and it'll make your life a little bit easier. All right, guys, I'll see you next month. Give yourselves a round.